ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't You're listening do to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, a critical examination of the world of pseudo-archaeology and the misrepresentation of archaeology in the world today. Each episode, we focus the lens of archaeology on a topic and discuss reality versus fantasy. We've covered everything from ancient aliens to crystal skulls, from DNA to modern fakes. Join us for our discussion this week and get ready to think critically. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the day is spent. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am joined today by me, myself, and I. Woo! Yes, today's a solo podcast. I hope you all don't mind. But it is part of a two-parter that we will be doing. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, or how many of you are John Carpenter fans to begin with. I happen to be one. Uh, they Live is definitely one of my all-time favorite po- uh, podcasts. Yes, brain. One of my all-time favorite movies. Absolutely hilarious. I just enjoy the hell out of it, but not perhaps the best John Carpenter movie ever made, arguably, though around this time, the same time, you can tell how incredibly knowledgeable I am about this because I'm giving you exact dates. Uh, Yeah, but around the time that They Live was being produced, John Carpenter also put out what he called his Apocalypse Trilogy, which was a series of three movies that don't exactly have anything to do with each other right on the surface. You kind of have to dig a little bit deeper to figure out the connection threads between The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and the masterpiece in the Mouth of Madness. And what may you ask is that thread? Some of you already know the answer to that. The answer is H.P. Lovecraft. So, In the Mouth of Madness happened to turn 25 earlier this month, this month being February. I believe it was exactly February 3rd or February 4th. You know, I found websites that said both dates, so we're just gonna go with both dates. But Regardless, the movie turned 25 this year. Uh, So 25 is a good year, yeah, especially for a movie. And I, of course, being the dutiful and superb fan that I am, uh, sat down and watched all three of those movies in a row. And you know, that's probably the first time in 25 years that I've seen some of those movies, honestly. I'm not a fan of the thing. It's not my thing. I don't, you know, I just, you know, spoilers. Uh, the dogs bug me. I just, I can't handle that. And it just kind of puts me off the whole movie for the rest of that. Prince of Darkness, good movie, I thought. I did enjoy it. It's a, it's an interesting movie, Prince of Darkness. It deals with the, it's hard to, it's kind of hard to explain, honestly. <laughs> but you would think it'd be very easy to explain. Basically, there's this goo that the Catholic Church has been guarding for thousands of years because they believe that it is the Antichrist in liquid form. I don't know. It's like Antichrist slurry. I don't know. But the last great guardian of the evil goo passed away without a successor, and so the Vatican now needs to find out what it is. They don't know. Uh, And so they pull in a group of physicists and other sundry scientists to come and investigate the goo. And they do, in their various scientist-dict-dt ways. Might I say, though, they did not bring in an archaeologist. There was no archaeologist in this uh, particular group. Not that I was aware of, anyway. Um, But there was a geologist, and I think there was, like, a seismologist, and they definitely had a couple physicists. I think there were three physicists. 
uh, they had a couple people who were just like math nerds. I don't know. It, it was an interesting idea. Uh, and basically all hell breaks loose, like literally and figuratively in the movie. It's very fun to watch. It has actually nothing to do with the thing, which is all about an alien life force that can shapeshift into things, uh, anything, honestly, anything living. It starts off with the dogs and then it moves on to humans. And the dogs are the parts that freak me out. Not in like a ooh spooky kind of way, but in a I don't like that sound they make when they get shot kind of way. <laughs> I know, I'm a wimp. But so you're asking, what? And of course then there's In the Mouth of Madness, which we're going to spend the most time on, because I am the most familiar with In the Mouth of Madness and its connections. But there are no, the actors, uh, John Carpenter definitely had a stable of actors that he enjoyed working with, and so he did work with the same group of people over and over again, which is awesome because most of those actors, in my opinion, were just great, fun actors. Like, they, they didn't take themselves too seriously, and therefore they were able to do all kinds of really great creative stuff with their, with themselves. Now, like I said, there's no carryover characters in any of those movies. I think Sutter Kane might have been mentioned. Well, I think Sutter Kane's books might have been mentioned in one of the other of the three movies, but Sutter Kane is the main character, quote-unquote, of the... Uh, I think I was saying Sutter Kane is the main character antagonist in In the Mouth of Madness, but he's also an author. I think his books might have Easter egged into a couple of the other movies. I don't know. Which also makes it funnier once you know that these are all kind of Lovecraft connected. But the reason why these three movies are considered the Apocalypse Trilogy is because, spoilers again, it's been 25 years. I think it's outside of the spoilers bubble, but all three of the movies are kind of the end of the world. Like, they, they don't save themselves. Uh, the thing ends... The thing possibly might not have died, or the, I'm sorry, the thing might have died or whatever, because at the end of the movie, you're left with two of the characters, and you, one of them is the alien, I think, and you don't know which one, and neither do they, and so that's how the movie ends, basically. They're like sharing a bottle of booze while they slowly freeze to death in Antarctica. So there you go. And the uh, Prince of Darkness ends, um, there's something to do with brainwaves being broadcast through time. Again, you really have to watch that one. That one's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. <laughs> I enjoyed it, though. I thought it was fun. But that one ends with the message that was being broadcast from the future has been altered, but is still being sent back into the past. So the problem wasn't solved exactly. It just changed. Which also says a lot about, you know, time travel. You can't really change the future. I don't care what the Marvel Cinematic Universe says. So, in the mouth of madness... Which I think is my favorite because it's so playful. We have the main character slash antagonist, Sutter Kane. He is a horror author. Uh, and they show us the covers of, I think, six of his books. And they're all very closely named after Cthulhu. Sorry. They're all very closely named after H.P. Lovecraft stories. And remember, H.P. Lovecraft only wrote short stories. He never wrote a full-length novel, which is fine. We don't really need... I don't, I don't think Lovecraft could have supported a, a full-length novel. I don't think he was that kind of a writer. I know that his dialogue was terrible, which is why most of his stories are so incredibly descriptive and carry very little dialogue, which is fine. I mean, they're still wonderful stories, and if you don't read Lovecraft and you're a horror fan, you should probably go read Lovecraft, you'll be surprised. But yeah, so we have Sutter Kane, the horror writer, and his pending newest release that needs to be found because Sutter Kane has gone missing and his publishing house wants his last manuscript. I don't want to ruin the story too much. I'm trying to think of what all I can say without ruining the story too much. There are some jokes uh, in the movie comparing Sutter Kane to uh, Stephen King, which 
is kind of a tongue-in-cheek because they do mention Stephen King throughout the movie, which is funny. Um, and I don't know if that was a, a thing between Stephen King and John Carpenter, like a little bit of, you know, fun ribbing with each other. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. As the movie unfolds, and we do have a main character who is an uh, insurance investigator. And so he's been called in by the insurance company that apparently insures Sutter Kane for the publishing agency who's trying to make the claim. And they're like, you know, we don't really, we either want our money for our insurance money for Sutter Kane being lost, or we want the last Sutter Kane manuscript. So we don't care which one you find, Mr. Insurance Investigator, as long as you find one of them. And oh, by the way, when you go to go find Sutter Kane, you have to take Sutter Kane's editor, private editor with you. And those are the two people that go to go find Sutter Kane. This is weird. And the, the whole movie's weird. The whole movie's weird. It's just an odd movie. It's fun. You really have to pay attention to the movie to understand. And I think it's one of those kind of movies where you already need to be aware of who H.P. Lovecraft was in order to really fully appreciate In the Mouth of Madness, uh, which of course is a play on The Mountains of Madness, which is a Lovecraft story. So that was my 13-minute uh, preamble to what we're talking about. Why, why I have called you all here today and why this is a two-parter. Well, well, my friends, well. We are going to be discussing the connections between H.P. Lovecraft, wait for it, and all of Ancient Aliens. I feel like there should be some dramatic music there. Bum, bum, bum. So this being part of a two-parter means that this first part, this first podcast, I, I personally just wanted to ramble about my thoughts into this because Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft himself is not at fault. It's not really Lovecraft's fault because we can also trace a lot of pseudo-archaeology back to Lovecraftian stories and Lovecraftian themes. And this is not, in my opinion, of the things we can blame Lovecraft for and of, uh, this isn't actually one of the things. Lovecraft had a very vivid imagination and an excellent way of writing, and he also really, in an odd way, understood how to market his stories to the public to make them believable to the readers. And this is important because Lovecraft at no point believed any of the things he wrote. Uh, Lovecraft, from all accounts that I can find, uh, was an atheist and did not believe in the supernatural. But he loved archaeology, uh, he loved little bits of science, he, as far as I can tell, didn't believe in fringe science, but he was perfectly happy to use all of these things in his stories because he knew that mixing just a touch of reality in with your fantasy makes the story so much more believable and so much more enjoyable as a reader. Now, he gave his audience the benefit of the doubt and believed that they could figure out for themselves that fiction was fiction and fact was fact. However, he also liked to blur the lines a little inside his stories. Not because he was trying to perpetrate a fraud, wow, perpetrate a fraud on his readers, but because he was trying to thrill his readers by making them wonder. And I think one of the things we talk about, or we're going to talk about in later on, is the Necronomicon. Now, the Necronomicon, as H.P. Lovecraft wrote it, never existed. And H.P. Lovecraft would tell anyone who asked him about it that it was a fake book, did not exist, that he made it up. People didn't believe him. And actually, today, you can find Necronomicons in publication of various different kinds. Um, probably, I think the most famous of them, I think, is called the Simon Necronomicon, um, put out by... I forget who the actual author is, but it's, it's called the Simon Necronomicon. It's a little dark, and when it was originally published, it was supposedly the actual Necronomicon. But again, that book never existed. So any of the Necronomicons that do exist today cannot, by default, 
be the authentic Necronomicon. I mean, I guess hypothetically they're all the original Necronomicon because none of them are the real Necronomicon because there is no real Necronomicon, which makes them all the real Necronomicon. And now I've got myself in a logical loop. Anyway, the reason why people refuse to believe that the Necronomicon isn't real is actually one of the genius things that uh, Lovecraft used to do. Lovecraft had a group of writers around him, a writer's group, if you will. <laughs> but he had contemporaries who wrote alongside him and with him, and they shared ideas. They swapped ideas back and forth within their stories. They would use each other's creations inside their own stories. And by doing this, it kind of created a suspension of reality, I want to say. But it made the casual reader suspicious. If you, as the reader, were not aware of the connection between Lovecraft and the other authors that were also using his creatures and ideas in their stories, you might think that all of these authors are independently quoting some dominant text. So if you've got three different horror authors or weird tales authors who are writing about the quote-unquote Necronomicon, and you don't know that the three of them are literally all sharing the same idea openly with each other and saying, hey, you use my idea, I'll use some of yours. Literally, these conversations are occurring. If you don't know that, you may think that you have three independent authors who are all writing about the same thing, this Necronomicon. So if all three of these independent authors are writing about it, then it must be real, right? There must be a Necronomicon somewhere that all three of these men are aware of, and therefore the book is real and it's just being mentioned in fiction. Of course, now we, we have books that are the actual Necronomicon, and it just makes everything confusing, but still. This was the genius that made, personally, I think, this is the genius that made Lovecraft's uh, fiction so stick with you, because he had the ability to create details and then market those details to other writers so that those writers would use those details, growing his literary world outside of his own personal space bubble and making it seem larger and more authentic than it is. Now, just based on my language, you may think the Lovecraft was trying to perpetrate... I can't say that word, so why do I keep trying to say it? You might think that Lovecraft was trying to create a fraud, because what I have just described to you is basically how a hoax works. <laughs> and there are similarities. There are purposeful similarities there. Apparently Lovecraft believed that a good story was much like a good hoax, and the same elements that you could use to write a, a good hoax, you could use to write a good story. And he proved it. I don't think Lovecraft was ever trying to hoax anyone, because when Lovecraft was directly asked, is Cthulhu real? Is the mythos real? Uh, is the Necronomicon real? He would flat out tell people, no, I made this up. I made all of this up. People chose not to believe him. But at no point did he ever write his books or try to publish his, uh, sorry, write his stories or try to publish his stories as if they were not fiction. And he at no point tried to defend them as fact outside of publication. So. I think he just wanted to write good stories that would stick with people, and I think he succeeded. So with that said, let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, I will start to blame Lovecraft for all things pseudo-archaeology. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the We hope you're enjoying this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes at www.archiefantasies.com for further information about our hosts, guests, and topics in this episode. This podcast is listener-supported, and we appreciate every donation, either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode, or monetarily on Patreon and Ko-fi. You can connect with us on the blog, by email, or on Twitter, thanks to all of our supporters. And let's get back to the show. 
Raise your trials as one will call. No way down to a dinosaur. And we're back with the first part of our Lovecraft two-parter. And before you all groan, oh god, it's going to be two episodes of Sarah talking to herself. No, I actually have a host lined up for the second episode. We've just got to nail down a date. So there. And I wish it was H.P. Lovecraft, but that would literally require seance at this point. And, uh, or the ability to resurrect the dead. All things, uh, all things that I believe Lovecraft wrote about at one point. Coincidentally. So I have been reading a book called uh, The Cult of the Alien Gods by Jason Colavito. And it is a really good book. It's one of Colavito's first books, I believe, published in uh, published in 2005. I have the uh, Kindle version of it because all of my books are Kindle at this point. I, I don't have the space for real books anymore. It's sad. But you can get it in paperback. And I think there might be a hardback version. Don't hold me to that one. But you can get both the paperback and the Kindle book. I recommend this book. But Fault of the Alien Gods is about H.P. Lovecraft and extraterrestrial pop culture. And one of the things that Colavito proposes in his book is that Lovecraft is basically responsible for the whole idea of ancient aliens, specifically ancient alien astronauts, and makes a good argument. It's, it's hard not to believe him in this. Uh, he lines up, and this is something we'll be talking to him about when I can finally get him on the show. Mwahahaha. But this is, he creates a timeline that we can follow, starting with Lovecraft and going all the way to Eric Von Daniken, which really is all the further you really need to go, because Eric Von Daniken can and should rightfully be called the father of the ancient alien theory, because he's the one that put those words together, I believe, or at least set the stage for those words to be put together. And he is the one that definitely champions the idea directly of a non-fictional race of aliens coming from space to either create humanity or to tamper with life currently on the planet to make humans. So one way or the other, Von Daniken does not believe that humans would have become human without alien intervention. Oddly, or not so oddly, this is an idea that Lovecraft continually came back to in his writings. The whole idea of uh, Cthulhu and Rylia and all of the other old ones was that they were a alien race of creatures that had come to the planet at some point in its distant past, like very distant past, and that they had created the first cells of life, I believe to feed themselves, and then just stepped back and let it go. A lot of the concepts and ideas that you will hear from ancient alien people, like the whole idea of genetically manipulating human DNA in order to make superhumans, or the fact that the aliens could beam ideas into human brains. These are all things that I have heard on the Ancient Aliens TV show, so don't come at me. It's there. Go watch it. If I had to do it, you have to do it. Or the idea that these, that these, these elder gods could create structures using non-Euclidean angles, which I still I still don't understand that. I don't think you can have non-Euclidean angles, but I am not a math person, but also neither was Lovecraft, so we're in the kind of the same boat, so woo, go us. But it's just the whole idea that these aliens came to the planet, they used their alien knowledge to build their alien buildings and their alien minds to contact the humans and sometimes just merely by their presence they have altered humanity and sometimes they have actively sought to alter humanity 
Um, but Lovecraft's gods, gods, because he does call them that, but his old ones and his old gods are not gods as we would think of them normally. They are not benevolent. They are not caring. They don't even not care. Basically, they exist outside of us, and they just simply have, you know, these powers that we are incapable, incapable of understanding or controlling or, you know, doing anything about because we are merely human and they are this bold and ancient race of beings that have traveled across the stars thousands and millions of years before humans were even human. They did not create the human race to be worshipped. They did not create the human race out of curiosity. They did not create the human race out of compassion. None of these things. Things that ancient alien theorists will claim from time to time. Sometimes they'll be like, ah, yes, the aliens saw the, the floundering pre-humans and decided that they would bequeath upon them knowledge and culture and genetics so that they could become the humans that they are today. And we're not, we're not even going to go into... The true issues of the ancient alien theories, which is, of course, you know, ethnocentrism and racism and colonialism. And because right now we're just kind of trying to focus on where the hell did this come from? Why aliens of all things? Maybe it was inevitable. Maybe we were going to go to aliens anyway. I mean, maybe. Maybe it was just a, a step that was going to happen one way or the other. And Lovecraft just happened to be the one to pull all these ideas together, write them all down, and then become one of the most influential writers in the horror and weird fiction genre ever to exist. Maybe. Maybe the aliens were in full and complete contact with him the entire time. And they were making him write these things because they wanted him to tell the truth through fiction so that later when they come back to the world and come back to re-inhabit the world that they created, we as humans won't be so scared because, of course, none of Lovecraft's stories ended well for anyone involved, usually. Did anybody ever, like... I mean, I know sometimes people survived in his stories, but I'm like, not survived in a good way. But anyway, these are all things that have been claimed. That, that, uh, that Cthulhu is real... The old ones are real, uh, and that... So there's a couple different things. So that Lovecraft actually knew these things were real, he was being communicated with openly by these elder gods, and he was writing all this stuff down as fiction so that humanity wouldn't be afraid or would be prepared for the returning old ones. That's one theory. Another theory that is uh, more fully explored in, in The Mouth of Madness, the movie by John Carpenter, is that Cthulhu was un... Or Cthulhu. Yes, Cthulhu and Lovecraft are the same person, did you know that? I mean, they kind of are, so I'm not wrong, I'm just not right. But the idea that Lovecraft was unknowingly being influenced by the elder horrors, the elder gods, and they were feeding him this information so that he would write these stories for whatever reason, who knows, they're the elder gods, they are unknowable. It is impossible for us as humans to understand them. They are not human, they are alien in every idea and sense of the word. They don't look like us, they don't work like us, they don't think like us, they don't feel like us. Which is the point. That's what makes it horror. But in the Mouth of Madness, that's that's kind of the punchline at the end of the movie. Um, Sutter Kane, they finally locate him. He's he's finishing his, his final book, the last book he shall ever write, because this book is going to end the world. Somehow the book is going to cause people to start transforming into monsters. <laughs> The end of that story is kind of weird, but that's the point. Like, literally, that's the point. But there is a scene at the end where they have found Sutter Kane, and they're confronting him, and he's like, you have to take my manuscripts and take it to my publisher so he can publish it so that the world can end. And the insurance guy is like, no, why would I do that? That's crazy. And the guy's like, yes, well, all this time, 
Sutter Kane says, all this time I thought these ideas were mine. I thought these ideas were coming out of my own mind. And he stands before a great big door with green slime and it's pulsing and you can hear growling and stuff on the other side of it. And he, and he spreads his arms out in front of it and, and looks at the door and he says, and all this time it's been them communicating through me. So, you know, that's the, that's the idea that some people have of Lovecraft is that he was being communicated to via, wait, he was being communicated with via dreams because he would say these ideas come out of my dreams or they come out of my mind so we've got two two ways that lovecraft was writing fact as fiction knowingly or unknowingly which is kind of a pain in the ass because if he was knowingly doing it then he was lying every time someone asked him about it and somehow never managed to screw up that lie and of course as much as i do enjoy a good horror story i do not believe the elder gods are real and don't get me wrong, I love Call of Cthulhu, and I love the whole mythos and all that. I, some of my favorite games are Call of Cthulhu, and I love those weird horror stories. Love it, like bonbons. Mm, give me a whole bag of them. I don't believe any of it's real. But then there's that camp that's like, well, he was writing it unbeknownst to him, and it is really real, even though he didn't know it was real. And it's just like, so there's this invisible teapot that's orbiting the sun, but you can't see it, but I know it's there, even though I can't prove it, but I know it's there. And it's just, it's that, that circular stupid argument. I'm sorry, it's a dumb argument. Um, but you do get that a lot of times when it comes from people who are talking from a position of faith, just blind faith. Um, I know it's real because I know it's real. Okay, great, but you can't prove that it's real. I don't have to prove that it's real because I know it's real. That doesn't mean that Lovecraft was really writing about elder gods who are really going to rise up from the oceans and eat us all. Why would you want that to be real? But anyway. Anyway, to bring this all back to why all of pseudo-archaeology is, <laughs> is Lovecraft's fault, it's not really, but Lovecraft, Lovecraft created a very fertile planting ground for ideas that would then become part of pseudo-archaeology. Uh, the ancient aliens probably being the number one contribution of Lovecraft to pseudo-archaeology. I don't know how he would feel about it. I would like to think he would be very amused to know that he basically created this idea that some people truly believe in today. But seeing as he had to deal with people in his own time... Who believe that his stories were real he might not be that surprised by it i definitely will have jason do the whole timeline that he wrote about in his book because it's really interesting at least it was very interesting to me to listen to the development of lovecraft's horror and his his short stories all the way through the decades to the the pivotal book morning of the magicians uh, which was originally written in french i don't remember the french name of it but in english it's called morning of the magicians and it also got translated into German, and here we go. Von Daniken read that book, and there have been multiple people throughout the years who have pointed out how much Von Daniken's ideas about aliens and about prehistory kind of line up with almost everything that is being said in Morning of the Magicians. Now, I think Von Daniken originally denied these similarities because that's what he does, but Von Daniken also wrote an entire book and tried to pretend like he had found this ancient cave full of all this gold treasure and, and none of it was real. Like he even eventually came out and was like, none of this is real. I, I made it all up. And then continued to publish books. Like that didn't slow him down or hurt him even a little bit. But my point is, is Von Anakin's not exactly known for being the most truthful, honest person in the world. And we should not be surprised that he would deny stealing ideas from someone or basically plagiarizing. However, because he did these things, Von Anakin Von Daniken's books became much, much, much more popular than the book Morning of the Magicians. And I can say that because we probably all know who Eric Von Daniken is, and we all are kind of aware of what the ancient astronaut 
theory is not as many people may be aware of what Morning of the Magicians is unless you basically do what I do and have no life. And that's okay, my friends. Come, join me. Uh, otherwise, congratulations on having a normal life. You must feel so proud of yourself. Anyway, I'm kidding. So Von Anakin is the one that really hammered the idea of the ancient alien. You know, he, he wrote all these books, Chariots of the Gods, uh, had its anniversary. Oh my god, what, what year anniversary was that? Anyway, uh, Chariots of the Gods, originally published, very first book, catchy title, very popular book, went through several reprints because it was so popular. There was a TV, made-for-TV movie, documentary style, done about Chariots of the Gods, and I think there was a very short-lived TV series. I'll have to look that one up. Uh, Colavito mentions it in his book, but I don't remember it, so I'm going to have to go try to find that. And all of that existed prior to Ancient Aliens. Then Ancient Aliens happened. And Von Daniken is in the first season, I think in a little bit in the second season too. He's uh, very prominent in the series. He's one of the talking heads that they cut to and from when they're trying to like prove aliens and all that stuff. So he's, he's heavily involved in the first couple seasons. I'm not positive if he's still involved with the series itself, but I do know that he has his own TV YouTube brand that he has because I subscribe to it. And I know that Gaia TV puts out stuff that is just Eric Von Daniken. I also know that George Tsoukalos is very close with Von Daniken, and this is not something that is, like, kept secret. Sukulis has been very open about his relationship with Von Daniken. You know, he, he doesn't hide it. He, I believe, was his, uh, at the time that Jason Colavito was putting his Cult of Alien Gods book together, uh, Sukulis was Von Daniken's PR guy. So, like, they've worked together closely. They share a lot of the same beliefs. There's ample film footage of Sukulis interviewing Von Daniken. So, and Sukulos is the one that carries ancient aliens. So between Eric Mondanikin and Giorgio Sukulos, those are the two people that almost everyone today would recognize as, hey, those ancient alien guys. You either love them or you hate them. There doesn't seem to be any kind of middle ground. I, I personally don't care for either individual. I think they're both kind of icky in that icky kind of way that people get. But they do have a strong following and a lot of people trust them. A lot of people believe whatever come out of their mouth. And those two gentlemen have single-handedly morphed the fictional idea of ancient aliens, of Lovecraft's aliens, into ancient aliens of today, where we, where people truly honestly believe that we have had aliens come from outer space to the planet and either manipulate human DNA, human beings themselves, or just straight up transplanted life onto our planet. And that evolution never happened, and that most cultures, especially brown cultures, never created their own culture. It was given to them by aliens. And again, when I have Colavito on the show, I am really looking forward to him explaining this in his own words because personally, I find that timeline super interesting. So let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, I will wrap up my rambling for you. Digging in a trench, monuments, Going to the pub when the we hope you're enjoying spent. this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes at www.archiefantasies.com for further information about our hosts, guests, and topics in this episode. This podcast is listener-supported, and we appreciate every donation, either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode, or monetarily on Patreon and Kofi. You can connect with us on the blog, by email, or on Twitter. Thanks to all of our supporters. And let's get back to the show. Raise your trials as one will call. No way down to a dinosaur. And we are back. And my last bit of blaming Lovecraft for all things pseudo-archaeology, 
truly comes down to Lovecraft's use of archaeology. As I mentioned in the first segment, Lovecraft loved archaeology. It's really hard to say love and Lovecraft at the same time, because I feel like I'm saying the same word twice, but I'm really not, but I am. Anyway, he was a huge fan of it, enjoyed reading about it, and it was very popular in the... Uh, I remember that Lovecraft was in his writing heyday uh, in the early 1900s, so 1900 through, I think he passed away in 1930-something. So, And he was writing the whole time, I believe. So that, I mean, that's a good career. I wish he'd lived longer. I mean, I don't wish anybody an early death. Okay, I don't wish many people an early death. But um, archaeology at the beginning of the 19th... Well, that would be the 20th century, actually, not the 19th. Math. Anyway, archaeology during the beginning of the 20th century was still pretty loosey-goosey, still starting to define itself as an academic field, still had many issues that needed to be worked through. It is not the field that we practice today, but you could see the formation of it happening. Um, if you want more information about that, uh, you're going to have to read some of my more academic stuff, <laughs> and I'm not sure y'all really want to do that. But that being said, Lovecraft liked to take archaeological archaeological discoveries and bend them into his stories and he would use them as launching points or starting off points for his more fantastical worlds and creatures he was also really fascinated with uh, margaret murray's book about the western witch cults and this is something that uh, jeff card has pointed out before on prior episodes and he also goes over it in his own book spooky archaeology so if you want a really good breakdown of Margaret Murray and her witch cults, definitely go look up spooky archaeology. There's like, well, throughout the book, there's practically like two whole chapters dedicated to it. And it's really fascinating. It's really interesting. Now, because Lovecraft liked to use these ideas, you know, he would just kind of cherry pick them from different places. Uh, one of Lovecraft's great sins was his liberal use <laughs> of Orientalism and exoticism of foreign cultures. And they're kind of the same thing, but not really. Orientalism kind of is specific to uh, Arabic cultures and Middle Eastern cultures and what we would have at one point referred to as the Orient. I don't I don't use that term anymore and I'm pretty sure academically we don't use the term Oriental anymore. Um, but religious exoticism or just exoticism itself is kind of the same thing. It's a very ethnocentric way of looking at other cultures and reinterpreting other cultures through a Western lens. This is something that pretty much only happens in Western cultures, which would be us. Hi, how you doing? And it, it's people cherry-picking details about other cultures, usually from the Middle East and from Asian, culture, uh, Asian countries, and not using all of it correctly, but thinking that they are. It's kind of like appropriation. Again, there's a very subtle difference. It's very small, but it's kind of like appropriation, which is something we might be more familiar with as a term today. But Orientalism and exoticism, well, Orientalism particularly has the trait of reducing those cultures to their most primitive, most superstitious, most violent, um, and most unsavory characteristics. So it's kind of like, if you know what the idea of the noble savage is, it's like the exact opposite. So it's, it's basically racism. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, call an apple an apple. But that's that was what Orientalism is. And that, that's a term that was actually uh, formed by an academic by the name of Edward Said. Um, he himself was an Arabic studies professor, um, clearly also from 
And he wrote a book that is literally called Orientalism, which outlines his entire argument about what Orientalism is and gives you case studies of it. So if you want some light reading, which I'm joking there, go pick up a copy of it. It's still available these days. I think you have to buy it from a used bookstore, but you know, it'll look great on your bookshelf. Uh, same thing with Margaret Murray's Witch Cults. You can also buy those still today. Uh, you can't get digital copies. You're going to have to actually buy a physical book. I know, I know. But reading both of those does give you a little bit more insight into Lovecraft and, ironically, also gives you a lot of insight into uh, modern pseudo-archaeology, not just ancient aliens. So what I personally think is interesting about Lovecraft writing about archaeology is that uh, archaeology was definitely plagued with uh, Orientalism, especially in the early 1900s. And so a lot of what he was writing of in his fiction, you know, the, the way he was writing about archaeology in his fiction wasn't terribly far off from how the real world talked about and treated archaeology. Remember, this is around the same time as the whole idea of uh, King Tut's curse and, you know, the whole idea of um, magical, the magical Middle East, the mysterious Middle East, um, just in general, magical and occult thinking about parts unknown are areas of the world that were not as well known to the West, mainly because they never bothered to go and learn anything about them. You know, people really like to harp on Lovecraft about his racism, and uh, I'm not saying he wasn't racist, because he was. I mean, we're not even going to talk about Lovecraft's cat any more than that far. But Lovecraft wasn't existing in a vacuum. It wasn't like he was, you know, in a culture of super woke people, and he was the last great jerk to exist. Uh, Lovecraft kind of really was a product of his environment, and I mean, that's, that's really all I can say about it, and that's the only defense I can even muster for him. Um, but, you know, he supposedly did recant uh, on his deathbed about, you know, how maybe he was kind of an asshole in the past, and maybe he didn't actually believe any of that anymore. He'd been shown the error of his ways, maybe. I don't know how true that is. Uh, I like to think it's true, but it also doesn't matter. It doesn't actually impact anything. It doesn't change anything. Um, what is written is written. And if you spend the time digging through Lovecraft's writings, you will find things to be offended by. Saying so, if you spend your time digging through any of the writings from the early 1900s, you're going to find lots of things to be offended by. It was the early 1900s. I, I don't know what to say. It, it wasn't a great time for equality. And, and you know, it, was, it, it just wasn't a great time for that kind of stuff. But because Lovecraft had a very westernized way of looking at archaeology, which of course he did, he was looking at everything through his own personal ethnocentric westernized lens, um, he, and he really enjoyed writing in kind of the old tail end of the Victorian era style, which is why his writing feels so much older than it is, it actually is, is because he purposefully wrote that way. He purposefully used old language techniques and old vocabulary in his stories because he was again trying to create an atmosphere and by using those literary techniques he was able to create the feel of age and mystery in his writing and also i think he just liked the way it sounded but it also compounded with his basically victorian ideas of archaeology and civilization and since there were a lot of things that were being discovered archaeologically that weren't fully understand that weren't fully understood at the time things that in the modern era, we do understand now more like King Tut, for example, and the whole Akhenaten thing, and, and just Egyptian archaeology in general is not full of mummies and curses and, you know, mysterious pharaohs who are going to rise from the dead and kill us all. We know that's not true. 
I know I keep saying this like every freaking episode. We know a lot about Egyptian archaeology because we've spent a lot of time studying it. And there's way more to Egyptian archaeology than just pyramids. Like, Egypt is a country. It's not a dot on a map. I digress. Lovecraft really liked to use this unknown element, though, when he wrote about archaeology. He really liked to use archaeology as a tool in his writing to create suspense and to create a temporal distance between his readers and the story he was telling. Because again, the further back I can set something, the more mysterious it becomes. And if I can push something so far back that there is no memory of it, or there's no perceived memory of it, it becomes the most mysterious thing of all. Um, this is something I talk about in Paranormal Archaeology on the blog and on the podcast there, is the idea that the less you know about an object, or the less you know about a place, the more mysterious it becomes. And sometimes knowing just a teeny tiny bit about it and nothing else really ramps up that feel of mystery. And Lovecraft was very aware of how that worked. Whether he, he academically knew and intellectually knew that that was what he was doing, he knew it worked and he knew it helped to make his stories good. And so he used it a lot. It was a trick that he did many, many times in a lot of his stories. And it set the stage for the kind of thinking that we have today where we have people who are, once again, not as informed about archaeology, history, and the past as they might have been in our own past. I personally think that's because it's difficult to get a hold of reliable academic sources that are written for the general public about history and archaeology, but it's very easy to get hold of sources that are factually incorrect or possibly blatantly fraudulent. It's very easy to get a hold of that stuff, and that stuff is written in a way to engage the general public. And so since we have, and, th and then those people learn to write like that. Like seriously, I honestly believe this. I seriously believe that a lot of these people who are writing about mysterious lost races and Atlantis and any lost continent and again, aliens and, you know, mysterious giants and biblical Nephilim and, you know, creatures from the sea or the moon or anywhere else. Even if they're writing about it in a nonfiction way because they may or may not believe that these things are real and true, or they may just be trying to convince other people that it is real and true, they are writing in a way that was influenced, if not created, by Lovecraft to tell a good story. It's just at some point, Lovecraft's ideas have been filtered down to the point where the fiction has been lost and it has become fact in certain people's minds. And so, in conclusion, that is why Lovecraft is responsible for all of pseudo-archaeology. Because, I don't think I've brought up this yet, but, you know, there's nothing like putting a brand new premises at the very end of an argument. Because he inadvertently perpetuated Victorian ideas about human origins, cultural origins, and carried down classism and racism from the Victorian era through his writing, which became popular, and was then filtered through various other authors until it was picked up by people who wrote Dawn of the Magicians, who were then completely cannibalized by Von Daniken, and Von Daniken started the most recent wave of all of this pseudo-archaeology, ancient aliens, giants, lost race things. And then there's modern television. So those were my final thoughts on the matter. As I have been teasing you this entire episode, 
Jason Colavito has agreed to be on an upcoming episode. I'm super excited about it. As soon as I can nail down a date with him, <laughs> we are definitely going to talk about Lovecraft, his writings, and the ancient alien cult that he inadvertently created. I am very much glad to have him back on, and that will be our definite part two to our two-part Lovecraft Aliens series. The main reason I wanted to have an hour-long show where I ranted on my own is because I had thoughts about this that I wanted to share with you. And in general, I just thought it was fun and I wanted to talk about it. So I hope you have all enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please remember to give us a thumbs up. Uh, comment. Comments really help on podcasts. Also, uh, share us around with as many people as have ears or that you can beam this into their brains. And if you really enjoy what we do, please remember that this podcast is completely listener supported and we really appreciate all of our Patreon supporters and our Kofi supporters. And if you would like to become one of those individuals, you can head on over to Patreon, just look for Archie Fantasies, or you can head to Kofi for a one-time donation. Again, this is Kofi slash Archie Fantasies. And we thank you very much for any support you want to show us. And if you don't want to show us any, we thank you for that too. Like and subscribe, send us a comment. You can reach us at Archie Fantasies on Twitter or Archie Fantasies at gmail.com or just hit us up on the blog, which is very conveniently ArchieFantasies.com. Catch you guys next time. Finding a wall and high-fiving. Extrapolating from a single stone the extent of a whole complex and then publishing it. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider donating to us on Patreon or Ko-fi. Either option helps us out. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the blog, www.archiefantasies.com, and like and share us wherever you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at Archiefantasies, or you can reach us by email at Archiefantasies at gmail.com. That's A-R-C-H-Y fantasies at gmail.com theme music was provided by archaeosuit productions this episode was produced and edited by sarah head no we don't do dinosaurs we don't do dinosaurs see are you happy do you get it now do you get it honestly